Welcome to Cybersecurity Unlocked, a podcast dedicated to interviewing some of the industry's brightest minds. We will feature discussions from a wide range of subject matter experts about their careers, industry trends, and what the future holds. Hi, welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity Unlocked. I'm your host, Avion Jones. Today, I'm joined by my good friend, Lloyd Brown. Lloyd works for FireEye as a cyber threat intelligence analyst. He's been there for just over three and a half years. Uh, I'm going to talk to him about his career, how he made the switch from government to the private sector, uh, and what the, the threat landscape looks like today. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for coming down. It's great to see you. How has uh, lockdown been uh, treating you? Interesting. It's, uh, it's always mentally tough but a lot of netflix a lot of playstation 4 oh yeah yeah okay <laughs> so has this has this period been uh busier for you or has it been quieter i mean i, I presume a lot busier yeah it has yeah. been much um busier as a lot of companies go to remote working they have additional security issues that they may not have had before mm. and so um we have been working to try to help address those with our our customers yeah okay and have you had any sort of, I mean, a lot of people have been sort of reskilling and training and learning a new language. Have you, have you done anything like that? Acquired any new skills or? Beat a few new levels, continue yeah. to just read up <laughs> on cyber threats because the, the landscape is just constantly evolving. Yeah. And so it's just consuming information day and night. And plus being American, there's a lot of things that are going on at home. And so staying mm. in touch with my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. We can come on to that a little bit later, yeah. but yeah, things in the US are pretty crazy right now. Um, so, what um, you graduated in two thousand and four? Um, mm. What was yeah? What what happened from two thousand and four? Talk us through you, how you got your your sort of big break. Okay, um, so I kind of always covered computer related things, and I worked in university, South Carolina State University, a great institution. And so while I was there um, in my junior year of university, a program reached out to me to help um, that focuses on hiring minorities into the the government sector Mm -hmm. across all different um, agencies. And it's called NAFIO, the National Association for Equal Employment Opportunity in Higher Education. And so I became a NAFIO intern and they placed me in the government And then so I interned in 2003 in Washington, D.C. And then in 2000, at the end of that internship, I was given a conditional offer for the government. So I completed my studies and then went into the government in 2004 and stayed for 11 years. Okay, great. And what sort of skills did you sort of pick up in the in the government? Talk us through yes, some of the, I guess, sort of roles as much as you're able to, of course. Okay. Um, So geopolitical security issues. Um, a lot of people who are in this realm, in, in addition to just cybersecurity, just security in itself is a mindset. Mm. And so you, you learn the mindset of things to, to understand, of what to question. And so that built my, um, my foundation of just understanding the way that the world works with geopolitical um, events and how they can influence decisions that are made and, and focusing that in, in security. Yeah. Okay, cool. And what, and this is obviously before it was kind of 
sort of trendy. So what what year was this when you sort of? So this is uh, I think nine the nine eleven event that happened in the U.S. had an influence on. There was a surge in hiring and wanting more security related people, mm-hmm. and so um, uh, I was one of those hires that was uh, influenced by the events that happened. Yeah. And I think that at least in, in the United States brought into context a lot more focus on security. What can we be doing proactively to prevent another tragedy like something that happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, of course. And then what, how did, what was it that made you sort of switch to the private sector? I mean, this is something I'll be keen to co- sort of talk to you as well in, in some detail because... You know, making that switch from, you know, government, whether it's U.S. or, you know, any sort of the European countries or Australia, China, it's, it's always going to be difficult to kind of make that switch into the private sector. So talk us through, I guess, your sort of journey. Okay. And how you did that. Um, so after um, working in the government, eventually I got a position in the embassy here in Singapore. And so then I did my time at the embassy. But while working there... I was exposed to a lot more of the private sector and just understanding life just outside of the government. Mm. And so then after staying in the government for um, 11 years, I realized that it was something that I would like to kind of pursue and just figure out and and, and try a private life. Mm. There's a lot of times there's always an option that you can go back to mm. the government, whether it be contract or try to get rehired by another government institution or agency. Mm-hmm. But I figured that since Singapore is a, a city-state and it's very easy to meet people here, mm-hmm. that it may be something that I would like to pursue. And so I felt like it was a good place with a lot of people who had a high concentration of wealth and opportunity mm-hmm. in a small area and that it's easy to develop a good network. Of de- I developed a pretty good network while working at the embassy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to try to make an attempt at it since I understood and had already been a part of this here mm-hmm. before I attempted to go back to Washington, D.C. and just uh, continue to work in the government. Yeah, yeah. And how did you, because a lot of the work that you, um, and, and well, the skills that you acquired and the nature of the job that you did, it's very difficult to kind of put that into a resume or CV and, yeah. and then sort of, I guess, sort of demonstrate that to a prospective employer. So how, how did you go about... Um, sort of demonstrating that and demonstrating your, your, your capabilities because it was quite a difficult journey wasn't it when you yeah. were kind of you know before you sort of landed that big job it took two years in order to finally land the big job wow. which was a very long very long painstaking journey but yeah. I'm very glad I did it but it was you're right it's hard to translate those skills or at least to explain those skills to a private employer there's not much value that they actually in general put on it or understood about it and it eventually took getting connected with people who were in the network yeah and understand and essentially speak the language that i spoke Mm. from the government before i started to get breaks and opportunities yeah and so if your cv is coming across a general hr um desk they may not actually understand the value Mm -hmm. behind what it what the capabilities that I have. Yeah. And so without getting into an event where I could actually have a sit down drink with somebody or a networking event where I could explain to things a bit more, mm. it was hard to, to, to translate that and, and get past the general hiring process. And essentially yeah. I ended up having to go around HR and using the network to get in contact with people who understood the yeah. industry and, um, and they were able to help me network into an opportunity. Sure. 
So what would you do? Because I think there'll be a lot of people as well, potentially listening, that might be going through sort of a similar journey or thinking about maybe making a switch to the private sector. So is there anything that you would do differently knowing what you know now when you were looking to make that switch from the government into private sector? Yeah, I, I think that it would have been very beneficial to kind of plug into the right network. Um, I, I did make some network contacts, but the timing was not right. And there, it depended on the market at the time as well. Mm-hmm. But I think having the right network would have um, would have helped. And so there are different cybersecurity focused groups mm-hmm. that could be um, regional and global and making those kinds of contacts uh, with people who understand the language and the, the skill set that I had from the government would have definitely helped a lot more and shortened my journey. Yeah. Which, uh, which focus, there's so many like focus groups out there and cyber groups and associations and a lot of people keynote speaking. Which ones would, do you particularly rate and all the ones that you've met, you would you know, maybe give them a bit of a yeah, shout out? So uh, it, a lot of it can depend on what regions that you are located in. There may be regional ones, but the U.S. Embassy usually runs a, a security working group um, depending on where the embassy is located, where you can meet a lot of people who are in the security industry. And like in particular in Asia, there are security groups like ACSG that mm. are um, that are security focus groups where you come in contact potentially with people who speak the same kind of security language. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so tell like whenever I, whenever I call you, it, it, it's always quite refreshing because I know that you are somebody that genuinely loves your job and you're always kind of you're wax lyrical for hours on end about your job. And I think it's really refreshing. So tell, tell us about what the job that you do today. Okay. Um, so I am a cyber threat intelligence analyst for FireEye and uh, our, we help provide intelligence and in my role, I help provide intelligence to the four different parts of the organization. And so... Um, Mandian Intelligence, which where we focus on everything from cyber physical to hacktivist activity to nation state actors or advanced persistent threat actors, APT groups, to financially motivated uh, um, activity, to information operation and influence campaigns, to vulnerability reporting. And so we either provide those in detail to particular customers uh, or um, create custom intelligence products and uh and briefings on particular topics and so that's the mandate intelligence side but then also i have the opportunity to provide um help to mandate consulting side when they are doing red team activities and maybe provide them with intelligence on threat actors and how they may target a particular customer that they're working with things like miter attack framework familiar tactics tools and procedures or ttps mm-hmm. And then also um, helping provide intelligence during active investigations, which is a constant um, pipeline, the mandate consulting, especially in the region, they're always doing investigations. And then um, there's also mandate validation, and so formerly known as Veridin, where we can actually take a look at a network and then imitate threat actors on how they would target a network and then find security holes and help them plug that. And so we can provide intelligence with that as well. And then also our managed um, security operations, so our our SOC operations, we're watching customers globally worldwide. And so when they're protecting customers and they may find a particular piece of malware or information, Mm -hmm. do we know more about it? Um, What information can we have to help provide the customer on it? And so also helping contribute there. 
mm-hmm. and then also um, teach uh, Cyber Intelligence Foundations, which is one of our our courses that we um, offer to clients to to teach them about um, attribution, to teach them about analysis, and and where that may fit in an organization's security posture. Wow. Okay. Okay, cool. And what? how do you keep up to date with, you know, I mean, the job that you do obviously keeps you kind of up to speed with the, the latest threat actors, but is there anything you do sort of outside of that in terms of, you know, following, you know, any particular organization? You know, how do you keep up to date with the, with the latest threat actors? And so we're, we're fortunate. We are constantly have analysts that are publishing new analysis all the time. And so every day reading just the things that we publish internally and talking to the different parts of the company to try to understand the cybersecurity landscape from what we see, but then also consuming outside intelligence. And so there may be information that, um, based off of visibility, anybody who works in intelligence understands that you are limited to your visibility. Mm-hmm. And so somebody, uh, another competitor or another organization or another government may have information that we don't have access to. And so consuming that as well. And then okay. focusing on geopolitical things that are happening in the world constantly 24 hours reading and consuming news and data and information in order to understand the shift in the threat landscape and to help use our intelligence to predict what may happen next and protect our customers before threats happen yeah yeah and how do how have you seen i mean this is probably a two-part question but i mean how have you seen the, the sort of threats evolve just during your time in the private sector working for fireeye over those, yeah, sort of the last three to four years? Um, so there are a few things have happened. A lot more, uh, there, there's been a blurring of the line that initially didn't exist between financially motivated threat actors and their capabilities in nation states. And that's um, happened in two ways, where a lot of financially motivated threat actors have become more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And then um, a lot more nation states have started to use off-the-shelf products in order to help blend in. And so it's hard to it becomes harder to predict. And then we've also seen a shift of zero day, heavy zero day usage, which used to be seen as the way to judge whether a group is sophisticated to how quickly they can exploit a vulnerability. So if something is announced as a vulnerability a week ago, there are some threat groups that can already start using those vulnerabilities immediately. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a lot of a of of focus and and um, a lot of skill in order to do that. And so that's where we started to judge sophistication. And then also watching ransomware groups um, and how the ransomware threat landscape evolved, which may be like the number one threat today, where groups previously would just deploy ransomware and maybe lock up systems. And now we're seeing groups take that data. So they're exfilling data from customers or from organizations and then maybe auctioning off the access to that information, access into the network, in addition to asking for a ransom for extortion from organizations. And now they've evolved to name shaming them. And so they now have created websites where they'll upload the data from those organizations if they don't pay. And then that generates a lot of publicity in the press. And then um, it's so as soon as organizations go out in the press, it's actually showing other threat groups that it's possible to do these same types of extortion activities. And then it's increased threefold. So even every week, just uh, to our customer base, we publish reports on tracking different types of ransomware operators and who they've name shamed on their websites. Wow. 
Oh, yeah. really fair. Well, what tends to be the like the most common uh, sort of objective of you know our adversaries? Uh, depends on who you're looking at, and so you may have uh, financially motivated threat actors who are just finding as many ways to monetize the money and the access mm-hmm. that they have. And I think people still need to realize that they also are dealing with criminals, and criminals may be telling the truth or they may be lying. Yeah. And so um, the financially motivated threat actors. Then you have your APT groups or nation state groups, and so um, you know, common ones from Russia to China. We also have uh, APT 32, which is Vietnam, um, um, Iran. You have all of these kinds of groups that are focusing organizations, and they either want to steal data that they find or um, potentially just maintain access in the network. And the way that you can understand what they may be interested in is this information published mm. openly online, information that they've disclosed on their goals and what they'd like to accomplish and achieve. And that gives you an idea of who they may go after and who they may target. Yeah. And then um, a very popular one is Influence, um, an information operations campaign where they will create, they'll use things such as like deep fakes, um, fake mm. Twitter, fake Facebook accounts. And they push out a narrative that supports what they, uh, the message that they would like to get across. And they can do these with um, bots and large networks of accounts. Uh, there have been public disclosures from groups like Facebook and Twitter that we've also helped out where we've, I mean, they've seen 150, 170,000 accounts just being used to amplify messages yeah, or to push narratives. Well. And yeah. so it's important that when anybody checks this information that they find more than one source because of that but we can see where they generated fake images and their glitches in the in the images mm-hmm. or where we've seen things posted all within the same 10 seconds across five different accounts right and so there are ways that we can track that and that's how you detect it whether the same message has been pushed out on so many kind of facebook accounts or instagram accounts and, mm-hmm. and they're all sort of pushing that kind of same message and you go right okay this is uh, and that's and that you see that a lot happening in various different countries that are trying to influence, you know, sort of presidential elections or, or and stuff like that. Yeah. So elections um, after the the incidents that happened in the U.S. in 2016 with the Russians um, pushing out information and narratives in our elections it essentially gave out a playbook to other countries to do the same thing. Right. And so they can do this in um, in different ways on how they're handling things internally. They can mm. do it against their own citizens. They can do it for international relations. Yeah. And there are even um, private companies that have been known to do these kinds of operations. So a government pays a company located in a different part of the world and they push out these narratives. Yeah. And it's probably in addition to the ransomware, it's one of the most interesting things to track because you don't know what news is real and what yeah, news yeah. isn't. Yeah, that kind of uh, reminds me of um, uh, a few episodes of uh, House of Cards. Do, do you watch a lot of like the uh, government kind of based shows? Yeah, it's it's interesting to to show where um, to take a look at these shows and see where they may have had like help or consulting or accurate mm. or inaccurate. Yeah, I was going to say, which one, in your opinion, is like the most accurate? Of the um, ones you've seen. I don't. Uh, I think a different shows cover different elements of that. I mean, you have everything like. House of Cards, it covers geopolitical issues. And a lot of these are, are time or uh, use information from the times that they are on. And so like Homeland, I think that just finished. But that covered many different um, regional issues. You even have things as simple as like, you know, like 
Madam Secretary that may have covered geopolitical issues at the time. Mm. Um, the Americans is another really good show. Yeah, great show. Yeah, that, that covers, and it's just nice to look at a lot of the history behind it because a lot of that, the way that that countries focus on certain issues, they don't really change that much over time. Yeah. The tactics change, but the objectives stay the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, w w with watching that show, it kind of reminds me of a little bit of like the time that we're in now. It's almost like we, we are kind of at war, but there's you know we just don't really know about it. It's almost kind of. I guess the only thing that would be different now is technology, of course, and social media and the, all those kind of elements. Which is kind of why cybersecurity is the natural evolution in the realm to like focus mm -hmm. in on, because it is clearly not going away. Organizations yeah. are more reliant. It's completely changed the threat landscape. Yeah. of how um, countries do their operations. And before, uh, there's, you know, there's military objectives or there's espionage objectives where they would put people on the ground, and now a lot of it can just be done behind a keyboard. Yeah. And it's like, how do you build those kinds of skills? Maybe you try to look into some of the certifications or the course that we offer to help understand and get a foundation behind it. Um, but a lot of it is, is in addition to having technical um, skills in the cybersecurity realm is also having a mindset. Mm. And I think the mindset is just as important, if not even more important than a lot of the technical skills, because you can pull a lot of that information and that data out. But if you can't explain it to an executive or an organization and explain why they should change their security posture in a certain way, yeah. then you just have a lot of information. And that's what intelligence is. It's data with context. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, in your opinion, companies need to do to be better prepared or better protected? Um, they need to constantly examine their, their threat landscape and understand the different fields and um, realms that they work in. So if it's a global organization and it happens to be in 15 countries, understand what's happening in those particular countries. Mm -hmm. And then also looking at um, who may target those organizations in those countries. So you could have sophisticated groups that are nation state and it's part of a country's geopolitical reasons to focus in on that, that government or that industry or that business. Or you could just have opportunistic threat actors who are just constantly scanning different organization websites and looking for vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And so uh, some of it can be opportunistic, some of it can be focused. Mm -hmm. And so by understanding the, the most um, common threat landscapes, for example, if a piece of ransomware tends to use one specific type of vulnerability in, yeah. in let's say, um, uh, Microsoft Office, then understanding that this is being used and exploited heavily and making sure that systems are up to date, that they're patched, and that you take you plug those security holes. And then you also need to have intelligence analysts and uh, like security operations centers, employees, um, who understand what's happening and can weed through a lot of the noise and mm. provide context on the information that you have. And a lot of times you'll see things in the media where they put a focus on information and they kind of uh, kind of um, push out a message saying that everything is broken, everybody's in danger, but if you actually have an intelligence analyst who understands what's happening, they can help put into context that it may not be as serious yeah. as a lot of the media portrays mm. and we do a lot of reaction and commenting on media every day we we push out a product where we comment on things that are in the media and help give our rating on whether it's it's on target or maybe it's off target or it's possible that something happens because there's so much um publicity behind companies pushing out these kinds of 
messages. Yeah. Do you think companies today, do you think they under, under invest in, in cybersecurity? Do you think there's just... There's oh, definitely do. Yeah. And I know that security tends to be one of the first thing that go um, that gets cut when companies are looking at reducing yeah. staff and, and saving costs. And as a security person, you try to understand also, especially in the private industry, which is much different than the government, the, um, the funding that is behind that. Sometimes you just need people. Sometimes you need to upgrade technology and equipment and all of that costs time and money. But the repercussions that could happen if an organization doesn't focus seriously on security mm. can end up being reputational damage. It could result in lawsuits. It can result in lost revenue. It can re result in embarrassment, um, um, especially with things like ransomware and public naming of these these companies now suddenly somebody's security position and uh, is at risk because their data has been taken and published yeah. publicly on a website and the news media has gotten a hold of it. And so then shareholders are asking questions, yeah. executives are asking questions. And so a lot of this can be preempted without having to pay out millions of dollars and suffer millions of dollars in reputational damage if you just hire and actually put an emphasis on security, mm. then no news is good news and threats are stopped before anybody or anything happens. Yeah. Because I guess that's always going to be the difficulty in, in getting um, investment is, you know, the cost, it's going, it's going to cost us this much, it's going to have this much effect on our profit. But if you kind of almost kind of reverse that and go, well, if this does happen, this is going to have a damning effect on our, you know, share price. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a direct link, monetary link. So it it does, I guess, yeah, surprise me that, you know, the companies do still kind of underinvest in, in cyber. It's like people who keep lawyers on retainers. It doesn't mean that you'd like wait until. Yeah, exactly. It's a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like you have a lawyer just in case something happens. Same way with cybersecurity. You have it in place just in case. And then it ends up paying off when one industry gets hit. And then next thing you know, you hear about three other competitors or organizations in the same industry and you look at how much money they've lost because they didn't properly invest and you're like thank goodness we didn't have to deal with that yeah. because we invested on the front end yeah in cybersecurity. yeah yeah what what do you in your opinion um in terms of skills are becoming increasingly in high demand uh, at the moment and what is becoming more sort of obsolete um so you i think you always need a human element of it everybody's trying to automate things but you're still going to need a person and a natural evolution would be like to start with the building slowly a, a, um, a sock operations and then after that you know evolving more to having intelligence analysts who can help feed mm. in that the sock operations um uh incident response is also becoming a, a very big thing in red teaming as well in order to try to um to help predict uh things that are that are going to happen or respond to them when they do happen within organizations. I'm um, seeing a trend now where uh, I think Tiber that's being used in the EU where they're using threat intelligence, and this is another service that we offer too, to help um, in conjunction with red team operations. Okay. And so we can say that a group such as uh, Fin11, which is one of our newest um, groups, is focused on an organization and what kind of tactics have we observed them using? And then we can give that to a red team, and the red team can use the same tools and techniques that those groups did and mm -hmm. mimic. And so an organization would actually know whether they could defend or not against mm -hmm. those. Yeah. And so that's another trend that's happening. Um, uh, everybody is trying to automate, but you still need people to triage it because there's so much noise yeah. that comes out. Yeah. 
So red team, blue team, threat intelligence, all, pretty much all this, you know, same stuff. Cyber assurance and risk quantification. Yeah, uh, I don't think I don't know if we do as much in the the cyber risk. Cyber insurance is definitely a thing that people are are looking mm. at and to. But um, the same money that you could I, that you could invest in that, you could also invest in having cybersecurity analysts. It's like an on-person insurance policy to help at least lower the risk. Yeah. Um, our CEO, Kevin Mandia, has said it's, it's a matter of how you react when you actually get hit because everybody is eventually going to get hit. But how much you triage and how much you, you handle that those incidents when they occur yeah. is what really, really matters in the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. And what, what's next for you? What, what do you see as your kind of next move in, in your career in the next three years, five years? You clearly love what you're doing now, but yeah. I guess the natural progression would be to move into some sort of management. Yeah, I, could, uh, I think the natural evolution is to move into into a manager role and help teach um, others to the the skill sets and the information that I have and help guide and figure out different ways where we could expand growth. We're still, and that's another difference from the government versus private sector you realize like a lot of it's around revenue and you still need to find different ways to make money and be creative ways to make money and so to be able to have flexibility and creativity and just fire is excellent at that it just if you see an opportunity and you can explain and justify it just go do it just go create it go spend time on it and so in this this world that i'm in in custom intelligence um it's just everything is bespoke products which is kind of where uh, a lot of intelligence is moving towards where people want something created exactly just for them. Mm -hmm. And so taking um, these kinds of opportunities and expanding it and finding creative ways to use intelligence and to help provide support to customers, I think that would be like a nice natural evolution because this is where the real fun is chasing, chasing bad guys and finding ways to stop them before they can, they can do um, harm to organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the uh, APT41 report. Okay, so uh, APT41 is a group out of China, um, the state-sponsored um, Chinese activity. And we've actually, you can download the entire report. It has tons of information. It has IOCs in it on um, our FireEye website. Mm-hmm. And so we call it Double Dragon because this is a group where um, they've been around for years and years. And we could see them doing nation-state activity. But then also in their spare time, we could see them doing financially motivated activity. And so this likely indicates some sort of like contractor type status where they, as long as they do their mission for um, for the government, that they can do things in their spare time. But very active. We still continue to see this group um, today. They still continue to, to look into investigations. And there's no real incentive for them to change behavior because in the cybersecurity threat landscape, there's no real punishment for getting yeah. caught and for yeah. being called out. And then we also have another um, group. So we just graduated another group called Fin 11 or Temp Warlock. Um, this group has overlap in the public that's known as like TA505. And this is a financially motivated group. Um, we've also watched this group evolve over time where they started out with spamming campaigns and large, large volume, sending out thousands and thousands of emails to even um, going into ransomware these days. Mm. And then it just highlights the weakest link in general security is always it's going to be a phishing email. Right. Because a lot of companies want to focus and make sure, and it, it is just it is equally important on um, vulnerabilities, making sure the systems are secure. But a lot of times it just takes one, one click of an email. Mm. And so since it's easy and it's low entry, 
we see everybody constantly doing phishing email campaigns. Mm. And so it's there's you can download things offline, low bar of entry. Um, some of the business email compromises, they, they continue to happen. You've been, there are groups that we've tracked even out of Nigeria. The whole business email right. campaign is constantly still going on. And we can see um, we can see how they operate, and it's just things you can download off the shelf. Right. And so this is it's made it easier for common threat actors, even hacktivists, in order to engage in cyber um, activity. It's low sophistication, mm. but it's high high reward once yeah. organizations are compromised. Highly effective. Which, in your opinion, if you're able to share this, it, like sort of nation or country is like the most advanced from a yeah cybersecurity perspective. Um, from so. In general, like defense is the hardest, yeah. And so every almost everybody's vulnerable to defense. There are company or countries that are really good at offensive um, campaigns, which are the traditional ones that everybody knows about. But defense is tough. And so as smaller markets start to emerge more and focus on cybersecurity, mm. then their defensive measures start to get stronger. Yeah. And so like Singapore is a great example because. Um, they created the cybersecurity agency, and they realized that this is something that needs to be focused on. And they they continue to um, emphasize uh, partnerships and focus resources. And so this is like a good example of uh, like the the emerging to getting a good baseline standard. Um, a lot of the, in the U.S. there's constant activity, and so you can see the U.S. and uh, EMEA having um, strong security postures, but Southeast Asia. In Asia in general, um, they are starting to build that because there's so much money and information and there's a lot of um, economic growth in this region that a lot of organizations are realizing they need to focus a lot more on cybersecurity. Right. Okay. Interesting. Which, um, what, what, is the, what does the future look like for cybersecurity? Doesn't, like you mentioned before, it doesn't seem like it's going to be going away yeah. anywhere soon and companies are going to con- continue to need to invest in cyber, what what do you see as yeah? What's what's it going to look like in twenty twenty two or twenty twenty four? Right now, um, we and so we do a general predictions at least as a company, and we predict things every year, and we release that also online. Um, ransomware doesn't look like it's going to go away. If the threat landscape and they're a partnership, and there was a way for different countries to actually punish threat operators, and there that happens to a certain extent with like Interpol. And there are ways to arrest people that, that are caught. And, and that information keeps being put out in the public. That may change or, or shift at least the cybersecurity landscape where now people know that they can actually get caught for what they're doing. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to the nation states, it tends to be down to diplomacy and um, maybe economic sanctions in order to try to deter some of this behavior. Mm. And so um, that activity in it, even when it comes down to diplomatic and military aspects as well, that will continue endlessly until the end of time. The second oldest profession is espionage, yeah. and so that uh, that won't that won't change at all. Um, as new things like uh, people will be focused on different like apps, so things like Instagram or TikTok are out. Mm-hmm. There'll be a focus heavily on whether those apps are vulnerable, whether yeah. there's information. It's being um, absorbed or, or being exposed by that. And then 5G is another huge one, whether there are security flaws in 5G. It comes out of, of, out of China, and do we use that to set up our infrastructure over the next 10 to 20 years? And so there will continue to be a focus on that as mm-hmm. well. Um, but 
as things continue to go online, it will become easier for a lot more common, just regular financially motivated threat actors to understand how to use these tools yeah. and they'll continue to grow in sophistication. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. You don't subscribe to any of the uh, 5G conspiracy theories then that have been sort of floating around? Uh, um, no government has outright said that they had proof, but no government would want to reveal that information no. for just intelligence reasons. Yeah, of course. But it would. it is definitely something to like examine and to look at because if I'm any kind of threat actor and I can get to a pipeline of the data that comes into your country then it's the ultimate win and I can just pull information whenever I want. Mm. And so it's worth investing and looking into. And we also even look at that also as a company as well mm. for customers. Okay. What, what's your sort of take on conspiracy theories? What's the, do you believe, do you follow any of them or have you, uh, do you subscribe to any? Not, not really because if I can't find good, like the value of the source of information or mm. having more than one source behind these conspiracy theories. Mm. If I can't find that, um, then I, nothing's a hundred percent, but no, like no, low, not. medium, high confidence. Yeah. I, I need a lot more information before I start believing yeah. a lot of the theories. Well, I guess that's just, yeah, that's your, I guess your makeup, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming down. It's great talking to you. I could literally talk to you for hours, but I appreciate you've got to, uh, yeah, got to shoot off. But it's uh, great to see you. And uh, yeah, maybe hopefully we can do this again. Yeah, appreciate it. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Cybersecurity Unlocked is also available on YouTube. Please like and subscribe to get the latest updates.